1: Do you think you can solve money worries simply by making more money? Do you think you need to struggle and endure self-criticism and pressure in order to be happy? And what's the most effective way to regain a sense of control when things get bumpy? Michael Neal is a world-renowned transformative coach and best-selling author. Today, we're gonna talk about some of the life-changing ideas in his books, The Inside-Out Revolution and The Space Within. After coaching for over a decade, I've noticed that many people still aren't happy or peaceful or fulfilled after they create the circumstances they thought they always wanted in life. This tells me that while we may be working and worrying about the circumstances in our life, it's our beliefs and our thinking that may need to be examined most. I asked Michael Neal to come on the show and discuss these topics because he addresses this head on. He challenges the way we think and view our lives and our problems, and it's not always comfortable. His solutions don't always seem practical. That said, give this interview a listen and see if any of the problems you're facing right now might simply be recurring beliefs and thoughts instead of the circumstances in your world. Here we go. Well, the first place I want to dive in with you is just it, it seems that when things start to feel out of control in our lives, our first response is to stress out we we 've got to get in there we 've got to get white knuckle things we 've got to try and fix things we get lost in a sense of urgency, things get frantic, and even if we 're trying to look like we 've got it all under control so I want to um, I want to read this this part of 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 the book from uh, inside out here it goes. You're talking about a pilot talking to the tower. He says, Mayday, Mayday, I've lost control of the plane. Please advise. And the tower says, Take your hands and feet off the controls. I repeat, Take your hands and feet off the controls. The pilot says, Negative, tower. Repeat, I've lost control of the plane. I'm trying everything I can do to bring it back under control, but I just can't do it. This is a matter of life and death. Please just tell me what to do. The tower says, This is a matter of life and death. Take your hands and feet off of the controls. Do it now. What are you really saying in this story? Well, there's, there's, there's
2: two parts. And the, fir- the first is just to point out that our lives can't spin out of control. What, what spins out of control is our thinking. Life is just life. And everybody's life has bits that, that go the way you want them to and bits that go different to the way you want them to. But what makes it feel in or out of control is is what's going on in your own head that you're reacting to. So the the where that story actually comes from is a a, a guy I knew who was a, a flight instructor, and he used to work on a, a Piper Cub, was was the plane. And a Piper Cub has a gyroscope in it, so it's a it's got a self correcting mechanism within the plane itself. So if you're when when they the the kind of final flight test is you have to stall the plane and then restart it in the air mm-hmm. and that's sort of your for your solo to get your pilot's license and so this actually was based on an actual story where the guy the guy said you know he's in the plane he's doing his test he loses control of the plane you've got to level out before you can start the engine he can't level the plane out and he's panicking and his instructors in his head you know in his ear going let go of the control And he's like, that's the last thing he wants to do because the plane's going towards the ground. And the reason the instructor was shouting at him was because the second he let go of the control, it allowed the self-correcting mechanism of the plane to kick in.
1: The self-correcting mechanism. I think that's where we're going to dive in here is that you're saying that in our own mindset, a big part of this book is that we have a uh, self-correcting mechanism in there. Is that right? Yeah, the mind is designed
2: for well-being. The mind is designed for clarity. The mind is designed to return to stillness. And we do all these things to try and quiet our mind or push our mind in a healthier direction or make it think this instead of that, not realizing that actually left to its own devices, the mind will always take us back to health. It will always take us back to creativity. It will always take us back to a place where we can get a fresh run at
1: things. So I want to, I want to, I want to work with this because I have done meditation retreats. I've experienced that, but there's, there's also been nights where I'm laying there and I can't, st- my mind is not being still like I'm, I'm staring at the ceiling and it's just things are flying around and I know I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I, I talk to people that are, that are doing this. So there is this self-correcting mechanism. There is stillness within what's going on here. Why, why are the, why do I have these two different experiences from time to time?
2: Well, I think the, the, there's, there's two keys to it. One is what you started to say and then caught yourself, which is, I just can't still. The impulse is always that we're supposed to be the ones who go in and fix it. That, that we somehow should be able to control our thinking. We should somehow be able to still our mind. We should be able to return to the state of meditation. That we are the um, the actor, we are the cause we are the, you know, if it's to be, it's up to me. Mm-hmm. Well, that is the exact opposite of allowing a self-correcting mechanism to do its thing. Mm. So it's like, if you've got a, um, I, I don't, I, we used to call them wizards, but, but just like a spinny top. And, and, and if you push it even a little, it goes off. Mm hmm. And, and then it takes a little while to, to get back to center. And then you touch it a little in another way and it goes off. And then it, it'll always find its way back. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a weeble. I don't know if you remember. Weeble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, weeble, wobble, they wobble, but they don't fall down. Right, right, right. So every time you touch the mind, every time you go in there and try and
1: make it better,
2: you're wobbling the weeble.
1: And what are the ways that we're doing that? And even if we don't realize that's what we're doing. Because I've heard you touch on things, we try to still the mind. But like, what is that? What is that actually? What are we doing?
2: Well, we try to think positive, right? We try and go, "Oh man, I'm being really negative." Let me let we try and replace our negative thoughts with loving thoughts. We try and be less, uh, think less horribly horrible things. We try not to fantasize about the the man or woman that we're not married to. We try. Uh, not to think about things going wrong because we know we should think about things going right, or we try not to think about things going right because then then it'll hurt later more if they go wrong. Right. <laughs> I mean, we do so much. We're actually continually trying to fix our thinking.
1: I get the image of a of an aquarium. I remember when I was in um, in middle school, and this the science teacher had this aquarium, and basically it was just a it looked like snot. You know, it was just this gross, disgusting thing. But it, the only way to get it to to be clear was to leave it alone, was to just let it, let it be quiet. Yeah,
2: it's, it's true. I mean, it's true that water is a great metaphor for the mind because we all know that whatever's happening on the surface, the, the deeper down you go, the more stillness there is. And we also know that the surface will get moved, but then it will return to still. And there's nothing you can do to quiet the mind that will, won't actually do the opposite. Like any any attempt to quiet the mind noises it up. Now, ultimately, with meditation practice and various things, you can temporarily sort of like impose a stillness on it. But but here's the other piece: for people who are interested in performance, for people who are interested in a, in, a, in a richer life, for people who are interested in creativity, you don't want better mind control. You want more freedom of mind. You want the mind to be able to go wherever. Because that's where new ideas come from. You don't want, if I, you know, I work with a a fair number of athletes and a lot of them are golfers. And one of the things about golfers is they've all been taught they've got to have swing thoughts. They've got to somehow control their mind. Mm. And what the relief that the golfers I work with have is to see, no, that's actually going in. They want, you want your mind to be able to do whatever the hell it's doing and still hit a perfect shot. Mm. Because otherwise you're paying attention to your mind and not to your golf.
1: Yeah. There's another piece here, we, we glossed over it, which is recognizing, I think, I can't remember the words you used, but recognizing that we are not the conduit, or we're not the force of creativity, we're the conduit for that force of creativity. So we gotta get out of the way. Yeah, I mean,
2: any any artist uh, at anything, and I mean, you know, from, from, the, from music to, to acting to to writing will will we'll describe their best work as i was unconscious out there like i that wasn't me i don't know what happened something right. came over me right. right so we all anyone who's performed at at their peak knows that we only perform at their peak when we're not in the driver's seat now that doesn't mean you you abdicate any responsibility it just means that it's ninety nine percent creative force, one percent you, instead of ninety nine percent you, one percent creative force.
1: Right, and that's a tough negotiation for that part of us that wants control. That is like, there's no way I'm giving this up. I'm white knuckling this thing. So in that moment, it is—is is it that we just stop taking action? Because I can imagine somebody sitting here going, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stop taking action. I'm not gonna be a bump on the log." What is it that, that, that person can do, uh, to, to flip things around in that moment. So he's not making things worse by, you know, with his hands on the control, so to speak.
2: Well, well, so this, this is the, um, this is the, probably the hardest thing for people to get, but the thing that once you get it, everything else becomes easy. The, the, what changes your life is understanding how things actually work, not doing them better. And, and I'll give you, I'll, give, I'll use the example of the plane, right? No matter how good you get at controlling the steering wheel, you will die if you don't understand that you have to let go of the control for the plane to level out. Mm-hmm. And if you understand you have to let go of the control for the plane to level out, you just will. Mm-hmm. Like once you know that's how it works, I mean, it, it, it's sort of the same as if you think that the hot water taps – and and cold water taps are reversed, you think the one on the left gives you cold water and the one on the right gives you hot water, you're going to keep getting burned until you understand which tap does what. Mm-hmm. And all the practice and all the discipline and all the lead with the left and motivational slogans <laughs> you might give yourself are, are utterly unnecessary the moment you actually realize, oh, hot water's on the left. Mm. And so when, until somebody understands how the mind works, until they understand a little bit more about who we are and what we have available to us, they're go- they have no choice but to try their hardest. Mm. Once you understand how it works, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to try your hardest in the way that people do, because you can see that it's counterproductive. You can see that it's literally getting in
1: your own way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're just mucking it up. Some of us get stuck in analysis we're, um we're 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 stuck we're actually not taking action we're actually not moving forward this there seems like there I've been in that place too where i'm I'm seeking safety i'm seeking security i'm looking for certainty um and and what in those moments I've found it really helpful to simply start and engage wherever I am. I think we're talking about where am I coming from here. Is that right? Like I can come from a place of this frantic, disengaged part of myself, or I can take the time, understand how things work and come from that more grounded centered place and let the work come through me. Is that, are we, are we moving towards that?
2: We, we might be, but there's kind of a presumption there and, 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 you know, for, for, forgive me for, for taking us here, but it kind of depends why you think you're alive, What do you mean? Like, like if if I've decided that the purpose of life is to get stuff done, then the question, then putting all of this conversation in the context of how do I get stuff done, makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But what you just talked about—that wanting that sense of certainty that what most people want is a sense of of peace and fulfillment a sense of contentment and happiness a sense of well-being that is pervasive and if they knew they could have it they would absolutely choose the well-being that is pervasive even when things aren't going great not the one that comes and goes depending on circumstance that doesn't come from getting better at doing stuff now getting better at doing stuff has its own perks it means you can do stuff better mm-hmm. When we start to think that the two things have something to do with one another, that I've got to get better at doing stuff and I've got to get better stuff in my life before I can have the happiness, the well-being, the clarity, the right. peace of mind, we're, 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 we're screwed before we start.
1: The idea that my peace and well-being comes from uh, how well I do things. Right. See, here's
2: the, here's the equation. If I think my peace and well-being come from how well I do things, then I put all my energy into getting better at doing things, which innocently takes me further and further away from the peace and well-being that are just sitting inside me waiting for me to notice. It's right there. It's always there. It's always there. It's our nature. That, That was my first big epiphany. When I made the switch from being a sort of a... Uh, you know, an NLP coach and a traditional performance coach to, to doing the work that I do now with the inside out understanding it, it was seeing I had spent my whole life trying to get better at being happy, not seeing that all of that effort was based
1: on not recognizing happiness was my nature. You were getting too happy. You were going towards happiness instead of recognizing I'm already there. It's, it's already here. Right. We have this thing in America, the pursuit of happiness. Well, that's just a
2: poorly languaged sentence, right? There is a pursuit of uh, achievement. There can be a pursuit of following your calling. There can be a pursuit of doing what you love. But happiness is not something that comes to those that pursue it. It's something
1: that gets noticed when you stop the chase. I want to dive in. This is, this is the other part of the book that I want to get to. I'm going to read from your book here. The idea of putting pressure on ourselves to strive for our goals now so that we can feel the rush of reaching them later is as bizarre and misguided a life strategy as hitting ourselves in the face because it feels good when we stop. This points to what is perhaps our society's most unproductive and ill-founded bias, the notion that happiness can only come via success and at the cost of struggle, stress, and sacrifice. In other words, according to this poorly conceived mathematical equation, struggle plus stress plus sacrifice equals success equals happiness. To simplify it even further, unhappiness equals success equals happiness, which ultimately leaves us with the oxymoronic formula unhappiness equals happiness. We've got a lot of people out there that are addicted to goals, that are addicted to achieving and growth and doing things better. And if they're not striving or pressuring themselves to get somewhere, then they're somehow beating themselves up for being lazy, not, not moving somewhere. They seem to like they can't win either way. They're miserable from, doing, from the constant criticism and scrutiny they pile on themselves regardless of, of what they're doing. You're, what we're talking about here, though, is recognizing that the happiness is already here. Can I just accept it as it is? H- how do you work with, with this? Well, there's a metaphor I sometimes use. And if,
2: if I want to get Five miles downriver, I've got two two primary strategies. I can, you know, put on my walking shoes, put the boat on my head, and and start walking down the dry riverbed, or I can wait till the river fills with water, put the boat down, get in the boat, and let the water take me there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not talking about happiness as a replacement for creating. But by the same token, creating has nothing to do with happiness, and you only have to spend a minute in Hollywood or reading People magazine to see it. <laughs> Right. You know, the, the, you know, that's that, that's the funny thing for me about living in L.A. is anyone who says you need self-esteem or that that uh, stuff leads to happiness. It's like I am surrounded by the counter example on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. Now. What happens is once you find that your well-being is always there waiting for you and you that becomes your come from, not why you're trying to do stuff, different stuff starts to appeal to you. You're no longer drawn to set goals that you think will bring you future happiness. You now get involved in creating stuff because you want to see it come into
1: being. That's like, what you're on the planet to do is to create this. this to, you're, well,
2: absolutely. That's so that's kind of what I mean, where we had to go all the way back to why why do we think we're on the planet? Right. Like if I'm on the planet in order to do what I need to do so that I can be happy, well, that's a that, that's a tough game to play. Whereas if I get, hey, I get to Enjoy my life. I get to live in well-being most of the time. None of us are twenty-four-seven. I don't. It doesn't seem to me we're designed to be twenty-four-seven jolly, but we can have such a rich experience of life while we get involved in creation. I mean, when I think of my 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 kids, right? We didn't create kids so that they could take care of us in our old age, or because we thought they would make us happy. Mm. We we created kids because. Because how cool to see these little people come onto the planet. Mm. Like that's the possibility of creation when you don't have your
1: well-being riding on it. When you're not attaching your well-being to the outcome of these things and you're riding that roller coaster. Oh, it's good today. I feel good. It's, it's not so good today. I'm, I'm not feeling so good.
2: Yeah. So like when we do are uh, you know, Creating the Impossible uh, courses, one of the reasons that we do Creating the Impossible is because you're going to fail. Like, that's the point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> <It's not laughs> so, so if you can fully engage in creating, even when the odds are stacked so heavily against you that it's ridiculous, well, then you start to see, oh, creating is its own reward. Right. And, and it's no longer about, you know, someday, one day, when I, I'll be happy when… It's, hey, I'm having an amazing life, and this is what I'm creating at the moment, and this is what I've created, and is it going to happen? I don't know, but I love getting up and working on it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't have to deprive myself in order to get somewhere that, that I get rejuvenated by simply being in that creative process.
2: I mean, it was something I'd learned as a coach early on is the number one reason people used to hire me was to get them to do things they didn't want to do. Right, <laughs> and I and and I did that like I was good at it, and then one day I just thought about that and I thought this is insane. Yeah, why why do you want to get better at doing what you don't want to do? And and then I realized it's because people think they have to. Yeah, they think they can't be happy or successful unless they make themselves do what they don't want to do, and they don't see that actually the the mind is designed for success. Mm. The mind is designed to Help us find a way that works perfectly for us to get where we want to go, not to try and copy what worked great for somebody else.
1: Right, right, and that's the difference, right? I'm gonna, I, I'm not seeking the answers outside of myself. Okay, there's the path. That's what that guy did. He did it on a Thursday, and then he did it again on Tuesday. Okay, that's what I'll, I'll emulate what he did. I, I listen to myself. I go within to this place. I develop. I cultivate this. It's already there. I just connect. I connect to it. I remember this. And then I act from that place. What wants to be created as me, as this, in my lifetime?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's sort of, the, the, there, there's, there, there's two schools of success. Uh, and, and the primary one school of teaching success, at least, is if I throw a brick through that window, there'll be a hole in the window. So if you take the same brick and throw it through your window, you'll have a hole in your window. hmm Now, that would be true if success was a matter of throwing bricks through windows. But success is a series of thousands of choices over time. And there is no formula that is so thorough that it maps out all thousand, 10,000, 30,000 choices that you're going to have to make between here and creating what you want to create. Mm -hmm. So what you actually need is not somebody else's map. What you need is a really good compass. Mm -hmm. And you need a lantern because it's dark out there.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Right. The future is not uh, bright or the future doesn't exist yet. So if you are carrying a lantern, right, there's a, I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald who said that, writing a novel is like driving cross country in the dark with headlights on. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see a little bit ahead, but you, you, you can't really see what the road's going to do up ahead. So there's no point in trying to work all that out or get somebody to tell you about that.
1: Or wait, wait to get <laughs> dry. Yeah. wait, like, or
2: wait till it lights up because right. that's not how it works. Right. But if you've got good headlights and what waking up to what's inside us does is it, it, it takes all the crud off the headlamps so that, they shine further. We can see further. Well, then you get really comfortable driving by lamplight, mm-hmm. driving by, by headlight. And, and, and you're not scared about the unknown and about the future in the same way because you know that's how it works. I, I won't see it till I see it, but I'll see it in plenty of time to react.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, like not, it's not supposed to be some other way. This is just right. it. This is how it is. Yeah, this
2: is not a character flaw that I
1: don't know how it's going to work out. This is reality. I'm glad you mentioned that because there's some people that, like, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, if I'm dealing with uncertainty, then I must be doing something wrong. I must be off. I'm looking at these other people, all these successful, They, it seems so simple, and, you know, they're, it's like looking at pictures of those Photoshopped images of women and thinking that's reality, but... Um I'm, I'm so glad you bring this up because some people think there is something wrong with them if they're dealing with some form of uncertainty in life instead of recognizing that's it. <laughs> there it is. Well,
2: well, and I think there's two parts to that at least. One, one on Easter, uh, we took our youngest to um, Universal Studios and we always loved going on the Universal Tour. But it was just the most interesting thing was the, the facades, the building facades mm-hmm. that you see these buildings that look so real and that you recognize from movies and TV shows and then the bus goes around the back and there's nothing there. Yeah. It's just it's just wood and paint and nails. And the problem with judging your how it's going for you against how it looks like it's going for someone else is you're comparing your insides to someone else's outside. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with enough people who are, you know, super successful, top of their game and people who are are just struggling to know they're all dealing with the same crap.
1: Well, that, that leads me into the next thing that I wanted to talk to you about. Because I, I, this past week, I had two conversations with two different men. Both were struggling with their thinking around financial security. So one guy, he's almost broke. He's worrying about how to pay next month's bills. The other guy makes over a million dollars per year. He's sick of his career, but he can't imagine living his life without being financially successful. So he's not willing to risk anything, so he's feeling stuck in his job because he's afraid to leave the big paycheck he's already getting. Both of these men were very triggered, very scared by the thinking that they're having about that's related to money and finances. That's what they were thinking it was about. So how, how do we work with these guys? Because I know these aren't the only two guys, and I know that there's a lot of others that are listening, and they can relate to one or both of these guys. So, go ahead.
2: Well, I, I, I wrote a story in one of my earlier books that I called "The Hundred Million Dollar Man" because I had a client whose net worth was a, a hundred million at the time that I worked with him, and and he said to me in one of our first sessions, you know, Michael, every day I wake up and wonder if today's going to be the day that I lose it all, and I was devastated. Because I believed up until that point at some level that there was a certain amount of money which would solve my money problem.
1: You'd be exonerated.
2: You'd be free from worry. This is – you reached the – Yeah. And my number was like five.
0: (laughs) It wasn't 100.
2: So – and it was just somehow I got – I got – this wasn't individual difference. This wasn't – I just happened to be talking to a neurotic guy. Money can't solve money problems because money problems aren't money problems. They're thought problems. Because we don't feel money, we feel thought in the moment. And when you start to understand, and look, this is the essence of the inside-out understanding. We live in the feeling of thought in the moment, not the feeling of circumstances. So if we don't understand that, we turn on the, the, the coal tap again and again and again and wonder why it's not giving us hot water. We manipulate our circumstances as best we can to make them the way we want them and then wonder why we still feel uncomfortable or scared or nervous or tense or, or whatever it is that we feel or stressed or pressured. Mm-hmm. Well, when you start to see, oh, okay, stress is an inside job. Pressure is an inside job. There is no pressure inherent in life. There is no stress inherent in life. There's life and there's thought. And thought is, you know, sometimes people hear hear this. We're living in the feeling of our thinking, and they go, oh, so I tell myself it's just a thought. Well, no, that's like telling yourself, oh, it's just nuclear energy. Like this is powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. This is our entire experience of life is made of this creative play-doh that we call thought. So it it's it's true but that doesn't mean that you can dismiss it it just means you're you need to become uh you, you need to develop a facility with the inner world as 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 rich or better than the facility you're
1: developing in the outer world so i need to develop a facility to recognize the pressure i'm feeling the stress i'm feeling is what is 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 a, is a result of what i'm thinking And now I also need to develop the skills to go and do what it is that I want to do financially. Those two things are separate.
2: Those two things are separate and they support one another. So there's an old analogy H.G. Wells, who, you know, the 19th century Victorian writer, Mm wrote things like The Time Machine and um, what was his other big book? Oh, I don't remember, but H.G. Wells, most people know who H.G. Wells is. He he talked about the dangers of mankind and technology. And he said, the danger of uh, the, the way. The the pace at which technology develops beyond man's own personal evolution is like having monkeys at the wheel of motor cars. The technology is dangerous in the hands of a monkey, even though that same technology might be fine in the hands of a trained driver. So yes, technology is fantastic. Yes, learning to create is fantastic, getting better at creating things in the world, getting better at selling, getting better at whatever it is that you do. But if you do that without getting at least as far in your own evolution, in your own understanding of of the human condition, of what it is to be a human being and how the mind works,
1: you're going to be a chimpanzee behind the the wheel of a motor car and it's not going to go well. You're still trying to find safety, even though there's a hundred million in the bank. Basically,
2: yeah, it's it's like I'm gonna, you you know, this car is out of control. Let me try going faster. Maybe that'll help.
1: Mm -hmm. No, not yet. I need to go a little faster. Right? Yeah. yeah. No.
2: Yeah. No. A hundred million didn't do it. Maybe two hundred million. No. No. Still. No. It's even worse. Okay. Maybe three hundred million. It's like no. Stepping on the gas is never going to slow down your car, Mm -hmm. ever. And that actually is kind of profound.
1: (laughs) It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, that makes sense. Tell us about the space within your new book. What what's, you got? Something coming out here in in May. What, what's what's gonna, what are you talking about in that book?
2: So, in the Inside Out Revolution, I really wanted to look to the the philosophy and the understanding of how the mind works. That that everything is created from the inside out. That we live in the feeling of thought in the moment, not the feeling of circumstance, and the implications of that for how we live our lives. In the space within, I'm looking at, well, who are we? So the space within is, is introducing you or reintroducing you or waking you up to that deeper potential within you, that, that spiritual nature. And it's, a, it's completely non-religious. It's completely non-denominational. But it's one of these things that is true of every human being. So I use the analogy in the book of Bill Gates coming to you for business coaching. And at first you're like, well, why would Bill Gates come to me for business coaching? And, and and then you realize he's got amnesia. He doesn't remember that he's Bill Gates. Hmm. And the question is, do you spend your time sharing your seven strategies for business success or do you spend your time trying to wake him back up to who he really is? Mm -hmm. Well, that's us. We run around disconnected from our spiritual birthright. We run around disconnected from the, the strength and power within, from the life force within, from the intelligence within. Mm. And we try and get strategies to deal with it, to, to, to create, not realizing that the second you wake up to your inner light, the second you wake up to that intelligence within you, the second you bring your genius to life, you don't need the strategies anymore. Mm-hmm. You already know what to do. And if you don't know, you'll know when you need to know. Mm. And so that's what the space within is, is pointing to in, in, in different ways and looking at how that impacts your, your, your confidence, your performance, how that impacts the, the way you are in relationship, how that allows for just way higher levels of creativity, and, and just the impact that that has across the board when, when people start to wake up to that. Not at the cost of your humanity but at the core of it
1: mm. here's the ground that you come from here's here's where you're creating your life from and if you forget this stuff if you if you forget that this is who you are truly um life's really freaking hard
2: Life-wise. it really is and 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 it really feels like you need all those strategies for success and all those practices and all that stuff and then you wake back up to who you are and it's not news like people might not like the language around it that i use but Everyone knows that feeling of coming home mm. and going, Oh, God, where have I been?
1: Right. Oh, that. So that's the space within. That book comes out in May. Is that right? May 3rd. May yeah. 3rd. Okay. And the book we've been talking about today is The Inside Out Revolution. You can get that now at your local bookstore or Amazon. And you can find out more about Michael Neal at michaelneal.org. Michael, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.